Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 15. The Rustwater Marshes Tom and Hester had walked all night, and when the pale, flat sun rose behind drifts of morning fog, they kept walking, stopping only now and then to catch their breath. This landscape was quite different from the mud plains they had crossed a few days ago. Here they had to keep making detours around bogs and pools of brackish water, and although they sometimes stumbled into the deep, weed-choked scars of old town tracks, it was clear that no town had been this way for many years. "'See how the scrub has grown up,' said Hester, pointing out ruts filled with brambles and hillsides green with young trees. Even a little semi-static town would have felled these saplings for fuel. "'Perhaps the earth here is just too soft,' suggested Tom, sinking to his waist for the twentieth time in the thick mud. He was recalling the huge map of the hunting ground that hung in the lobby of the London Museum and the great sweep of marsh country that stretched all the way from the central mountains to the shores of the Sea of Kazakh, mile after mile of reed beds and thin blue creeks, and all of it marked unsuitable for town or city. He said, I think this must be the edge of the Rustwater Marshes. They call it that because the water is supposed to be stained red with the rust of towns that have strayed into it and sunk. Only the most foolhardy mare would bring his town here. Then Rayland and Anna Fang brought us much further south than I thought, whispered Hester to herself. London must be almost a thousand miles away by now. It'll take months to catch it up again, and Shrike will be on my tail the whole way. But you fooled him, Tom reminded her. We escaped! He won't stay fooled for long, she said. He'll soon pick up our tracks again. Why do you think he's called a stalker? On and on she led him, dragging him over hills and through mires and down valleys where the air was speckly with swarms of whining, stinging flies. They both grew weary and peevish. Once Tom suggested they sit down and rest a while and Hester snapped back, Do what you like, what do I care? After that, he trudged on in silence, angry at her, What a horrible, ugly, vicious, self-pitying girl she was. After all they had come through, and the way he had helped her in the outcountry, she was still ready to abandon him. He wished Shrike had got her, and it was Miss Fang or Cora who he had escaped with. They would have let him rest his aching feet. But he was glad enough of Hester when the darkness fell, when thick clots of fog rose out of the marshes like the ghosts of mammoths, and every rustle in the undergrowth sounded like a stalker's footfall. She found a place for them to spend the night, in the shelter of some stunted trees, and later, when the sudden shriek of a hunting owl brought him leaping out of his uneasy sleep, he found her sitting guard beside him like a friendly gargoyle. It's all right, she told him. 
and after a moment, in one of those sudden flashes of softness that he had noticed before, she said, I miss them, Tom, my mum and dad. I know, he said. I miss mine too. You've got no family at all in London? No. No friends? He thought about it. Mm, not really. Who was that girl? She asked after a little while. What? Where? In the gut that night, with you and Valentine. That was Catherine, he said. She's, well, she's Valentine's daughter. Hester nodded. She's pretty, she said. After that, he slept easier, dreaming that Catherine was coming down to rescue them in an airship, carrying them back into the crystal light above the clouds. When he next opened his eyes, it was dawn, and Hester was shaking him. Listen. He listened, and heard a sound that was not the sound of woods or water. Is it a town? he asked hopefully. No. Hester tilted her head to one side, tasting the sound. It's a Rotwang aero engine. It grew louder, throbbing down out of the sky. Above the swirling Mr. London scout ship flickered by. They froze, hoping that the wet black cage of branches overhead would hide them. The growl of the airship faded and then rose again, circling. Shrike can see us, whispered Hester, staring up at the blind white fog. I can feel him watching us. No, no, Tom insisted. If we can't see the airship, how can he see us? It stands to reason. But high overhead, the resurrected man tunes his eyes to ultra-red and switches on his heat sensors and sees two glowing human shapes amid the soft grey static of the trees. Take me closer, he orders. If you can see them so clearly now, the airship's pilot grumbles, it's a pity you couldn't tell that blooming balloon was empty before we went chasing it across half the hunting ground. Shrike says nothing. Why should he explain himself to this whining once-born? He had seen that the balloon was empty as soon as it popped back up above the clouds, but he had decided to keep it to himself. He was pleased at Hester Shaw's quick thinking, and he decided to let her live a few more hours as a reward, while this slow-witted engineer aviator pursued her empty balloon. He flicks his eyes back to their normal setting. He will hunt Hester the hard way with scent and sound and ordinary vision. He calls up a memory of her face and sets it turning in his mind as the airship sweeps down through the fog. Run, said Hester. The airship loomed out of the whiteness a few yards away, settling towards the ground with its rotors beating the fog like egg whisks. She hauled Tom out of their useless hiding place and away across sodden ground knuckled with tree roots. White scuts of water spurted at every step and black slime gurgled into their boots. They ran blindly until Hester came to such an abrupt stop that Tom crashed into her from behind and they both went sprawling. They had come in a circle. The airship hung just ahead of them and a giant shape barred their path. Two beams of pale green light stabbed towards them filled with dancing water droplets. Hester, grated a metal voice. Hester groped for something she could use as a weapon and came up with a gnarled old length of wood. Don't come any closer, Shrike, she warned. I'll smash those pretty green eyes of yours. I'll bash your brains out. Come on, squeaked Tom, plucking at her coat and trying to drag her away. Where to? 
asked Hester, risking a quick glance back at him. She shifted her grip on the makeshift club and stood her ground as Shrike stalked closer. You have done well, Hester, but the hunt is ended. The stalker was moving carefully over the wet ground. Each time he set down his metal foot, a wreath of steam hissed up. He raised his hands and claw-like blades slid out. What made you change your mind about London, Shrike? shouted Hester angrily. How do you come to be Croom's old job man? You led me to London, Hester. Shrike paused and his dead face widened in a steely smile. I knew you would go there. I sold my collection and chartered an airship so that I could get there before you. You've sold your clockwork people. Hester sounded astonished. Shrike, if you wanted me back that badly, why didn't you just track me down? I decided to let you cross the hunting ground alone, said Shrike. It was a test. Did I pass? Shrike ignored her. When I reached London, I was taken straight to the Engineerium, as I expected. I spent 18 months there waiting for you to arrive. The engineers took me apart and put me together again a dozen times, but it was worth it. I made a deal with Magnus Kroom. He has promised me my heart's desire. Oh, good, said Hester weakly, wondering what on earth he was talking about. But first, you must die. But, Shrike, why? The reply was drowned out by a thick, warbling hum that made Tom wonder if the stalker's airship was about to lift off without him. He glanced up at it. It was still holding the same position as before, but the steady chirrup of the propellers had been masked by the new noise, a rumbling, slithering roar that grew louder every second. Even Shrike seemed disturbed. His eyes flickered and he tilted his head to one side, listening. Underfoot, the ground began to tremble. Out of the fog behind the stalker burst a wall of mud and water, curling over at the top, capped with white foam. Behind it came a town, a very small old-fashioned town, racing along on eight fat wheels. Hester scrambled backwards, and Shrike saw the look on her face and turned to see what caused it. Tom dived sideways, grabbing the girl by the scruff of her neck and hurling her to safety. The airship tried to veer away, but the wheels of the speeding town caught it and blew it apart and ploughed the blazing debris down into the mud. An instant later, they heard the stalker bellow, Hester! as the huge front wheel came crashing down on him. They clung together, rolling over and over as the town howled past, a flicker of spokes and pistons, firelight on metal, tiny figures staring down from observation decks, the long drawn-out moan of a klaxon echoing through the fog. Then just as suddenly as it had appeared, it was gone. The air stank of smoke and hot metal. They sat up. Bits of airship were drifting down, blazing merrily. Where the stalker had been standing, a deep wheel mark was quickly filling with black, glistening mud. Something which might have been an iron hand jutted from the ooze, and a pale cloud of steam rose into the air above it and slowly faded. Is it dead? asked Tom, his voice all quivery with fright. A town just ran over him, said Hester. 
I shouldn't think he's very well. Tom wondered dimly what Shrike had meant about his heart's desire. Why would he have sold his precious collection to come after Hester if all he wanted to do was kill her? There was no way of knowing now. And the poor men on that airship, he whispered. They were sent to help him kill us, Natsworthy, said the girl. Don't waste your pity on them. They were quiet for a moment, staring at the mist. Then Tom said, I wonder what it was running from. What do you mean? That town, said Tom. It was moving so fast. Something must be chasing it. Hester looked at him and slowly realised what he meant. Oh, knackers, she said. The second town was upon them almost at once. It was bigger than the first, with vast barrel-shaped wheels. On its gaping jaws, some wag had drawn a toothy grin and the words, Happy Eater. There was no time to run out of its way. Hester grabbed Tom this time and he saw her shouting something, but the shrieking thunder of the engines meant that it took him a moment to work out what it was. We can jump it! Do as I do! The town rolled over them, its wheels passing on either side so that they were lifted up like two ants in the path of a plough, lifted on a wave of mud that almost smashed them against the lumbering metal belly overhead. Hester crouched on the crest of a wave like a surfer and Tom wobbled beside her, expecting at any moment to be swatted out of his life by a passing derrick or hurled under the wheels. Hester was shouting at him again and pointing. An exhaust duct was rushing past them like a monstrous snake and by the flare of furnace light from vents on the town's underside, he made out the handrail of a maintenance platform. Hester grabbed at it and swung herself up and Tom flung himself after her. For a moment his hands clutched wildly at nothing. Then there was rusty iron under his fingers, almost jerking his arms from their sockets and Hester reached down and took a firm grip on his belt and hauled him to safety. It was a long time before they stopped shaking and clambered to their feet. They both looked as if they had been modelled crudely from the outcountry mud. It covered their clothes and clagged in their hair and plastered their faces. Tom was laughing helplessly at the closeness of their escape and at the sheer surprise of finding himself still alive, and Hester laughed with him. He had never heard her laugh before, and he had never felt as close to anyone as he felt to her at that moment. "'We'll be all right,' she said. "'We'll be all right now. Let's go up and find out who we've hitched a lift with.' Whatever the town was, it was small. Only a suburb, really. Tom amused himself by trying to work out what it might be, while Hester picked the lock on a hatchway and led him up a long stairwell with rusty walls that steamed in the heat from the engines. He thought it looked a bit like Crawley or Pearly Spokes, the suburbs that London had built back in the great old days when there was so much prey that cities could afford to build little satellite towns. If so, it might have its own merchant airships, licensed to trade with London but something still nagged at the back of his mind. Only the most foolhardy mare would bring his town here. Why on earth would Crawley or Pearly Spokes be chasing a townlet into the dreaded Rustwater marshes? They climbed on up the stairwell until they reached a second hatch. It wasn't locked and swung open to let them out onto the upper deck. A cold wind blew fog between the metal buildings and the deck plates shook and lurched as the suburb raced onwards. The streets seemed deserted, but Tom knew that small towns often had only a few hundred inhabitants. 
Perhaps they were all busy in the engine rooms or waiting safe indoors until the chase was over. But there was something about this place he didn't like. It certainly wasn't the trim little suburb he had been hoping for. The deck plates were rusty and pitted and the shabby houses were dwarfed by huge auxiliary engines that had been ripped out of other towns and bolted haphazardly to this one, linked to the main engines on the deck below by a cat's cradle of gigantic ducts that wrapped around the buildings and burrowed down through holes cut in the deck plate. Beyond them, where Tom would have expected parks and observation platforms, a mess of gun emplacements and wooden palisades ringed the edge of the suburb. Hester motioned for him to keep quiet and led him towards the foggy stern, where he could see a tall building that must be the town hall. As they drew nearer, he made out a sign above the entrance which read, Welcome to Tunbridge Wheels. Population. Crossed out 500. Crossed out 467. 212 and still rising. Above it flapped a black and white flag, a grinning skull and two crossed bones. Great! Quirk, gasped Tom. This is a pirate suburb. And suddenly, from foggy side streets all around them, came men and women as shabby as the town, lean and hard and fierce-eyed, and carrying the biggest guns that he had ever seen. As the pirate suburb speeds on its way, silence returns to the rust water, broken only by the sounds of small creatures moving in the reed beds. Then the ooze in one of the deep wheel ruts burbles and heaves and vomits up the jerking wreck of Shrike. He has been driven far down into the mud like a screaming tent peg, ground and crushed and twisted. His left arm hangs by a few frayed wires. His right leg will not move. One of his eyes is dark and blind and the view from the other is cloudy so that he has to keep switching his head to clear it. Bits of his memory have vanished, but others come up unbidden. As he wades out of the suburb's wheel marks, he remembers the ancient wars that he was built for. At Hill 20, the Tesla guns crackled like iced lightning, wrapping him in fire until his flesh began to fry on his iron bones. But he survived. He is the last of the Lazarus Brigade, and he always survives. It will take a lot more than being run over by a couple of towns to finish Shrike. Slowly, slowly, he claws his way to firmer ground and sniffs and scouts and scans until he is sure that Hester escaped alive. He feels very proud of her. His heart's desire. Soon he will find her again and the loneliness of his everlasting life will be over. The suburb has left deep grooves across the landscape. It will be easy to track, even with his leg dragging uselessly, even with an eye gone and his mind misfiring. The stalker throws back his head and bellows his hunting cry at the empty marshes. Chapter 16. The Turd Tanks London kept on moving, day after day, grinding its way across the continent formerly known as Europe, as if there was some fantastic prize ahead. But all that the lookouts had sighted since the City 8 salt hook were a few tiny scavenger towns, and Magnus Croom would not even alter course to catch them. People started to grow restless, asking each other in whispers what the Lord Mayor thought he was playing at. London had never been meant to go so far, so fast. There was talk of food shortages, and the heat from the engines spread up through the deck plates until it was said you could fry an egg on the pavements of TS6. 
Down in the gut, the heat was appalling, and when Catherine stepped off the elevator at Tartarus Row, she felt as if she had just walked into an oven. She had never been so deep into the gut before, and for a while she stood blinking on the steps of the elevator terminus, dazed by the noise and darkness. Up on Tier 1, she had left the sun shining down on Circle Park and a cool wind stirring the rose bushes. Down here, gangs of men were running about, klaxons were honking, and huge hoppers of fuel were grinding past her on their way to the furnaces. For a moment, she felt like going home, but she knew that she had to do what she had come here for, for father's sake. She took a deep breath and went out into the street. It was nothing like High London. Nobody knew her face down here. Passers-by were surly when she asked them for directions, and off-duty labourers lounging on the pavements whistled as she went by and shouted, "'Hello, darling!' and "'Where'd you get that at?' A burly foreman shoved her aside to lead a gang of shackled convicts past. From shrines under the fuel ducts leered statues of sooty peat, the hunchbacked god of engine rooms and smokestacks. Catherine lifted her chin and kept a tight grip on Dog's leash, glad that he was there to protect her. But she knew that this was the only place where she could hope to find the truth. With father away and Tom lost or dead and Magnus Croom unwilling to talk, there was one person left in London who might know the secret of the scarred girl. It had been hard work finding him, but luckily the staff in the records office at the Guild of Salvagemen, Stokers, Wheel Tappers and Associated Gut Operatives were happy enough to oblige Thaddeus Valentine's daughter. If there was an apprentice engineer near the waste chutes that night, they said, he must have been supervising convict labourers. And if he was supervising convict labourers, he must have come from the engineer's experimental prison in the deep gut. A few more questions and a bribe to a gut foreman and she had a name. Apprentice Engineer Pod. Now, nearly a week after her meeting with the Lord Mayor, she was on her way to talk to him. The Deep Gut Prison was a complex of buildings the size of a small town, which clustered around the base of a giant support pillar. Catherine followed signposts to the administration block, a spherical metal building jacked up on rust-streaked gantries and slowly revolving so that the supervisors could look down from its windows and watch their cell blocks and exercise yards and algae mat farms spin endlessly around them. In the entrance hall, neon light glimmered on acres of white metal. An engineer came gliding up to Catherine as she stepped inside. No dogs allowed, he said. He's not a dog, he's a wolf, replied Catherine with her sweetest smile, and the man jumped back as dog sniffed at his rubber coat. He was prim-looking, with a thin, pursed mouth and patches of eczema on his bald head. The badge on his coat said, Gut Supervisor Nimmo. Catherine smiled at him, and before he could raise any more objections, she showed her gold pass and said, I'm, on a he- I'm here on an errand for my father, the head historian. I have to see one of your apprentices, a boy named Pod. Supervisor Nemo blinked at her and said, But, but, I've come straight from Magnus Croom's office, Catherine lied. Call his secretary if you want to check. No, I'm sure it's all right, mumbled Nemo. Nobody from outside the guild had ever wanted to interview an apprentice before, and he didn't like it. There was probably a rule against it. But he didn't want to argue with someone who knew the Lord Mayor. He asked Catherine to wait and scurried away, vanishing into a glass-walled office at the far side of the hall. 
Catherine waited, stroking Dog's head and smiling politely at bold, white-coated passers-by. Soon Nimmo was back. I've located Apprentice Pod, he announced. He has been transferred to Section 60. Oh, well done, Mr Nimmo, beamed Catherine. Can you send him up? Certainly not, retorted the engineer, who wasn't sure he liked being ordered about by a mere historian's daughter. But if she wanted to see Section 60, he would take her there. Follow me, he said, leading the way to a small elevator. Section 60 is on the underdecks. The underdecks were where London kept its plumbing. Catherine had read about them in her school books, so she was prepared for the long descent, but nothing could have prepared her for the smell. It hit her as soon as the elevator reached the bottom and the door slid open. It was like walking into a wall of wet sewage. This is Section 60, one of our most interesting experimental labour units, said Nimmo, who didn't seem to notice the smell. The convicts assigned to this sector are helping to develop some very exciting new ways of recycling the city's waste products. Catherine stepped out, clamping her handkerchief over her nose. She found herself standing in a huge, dimly lit space. Ahead of her were three tanks, each larger than Cleo House and all its gardens. Stinking yellow-brown filth was dribbling into the tanks from a maze of pipes that clung to the low ceiling and people in drab grey prison coveralls were wading chest-deep in it, skimming the surface with long-handled rate. "'What are they doing?' asked Catherine. "'What is that stuff?' "'Detritus, Miss Valentine,' said Nimmo, sounding proud. "'Effluent, ejector, human nutritional by-products.' "'You mean poo?' said Catherine, appalled. Thank you, Miss Valentine. Perhaps that is the word for which I was groping. Nimmo glared at her. There is nothing disgusting about it, I assure you. We all uh, use the toilet from time to time. Well, now you know where your um, poo ends up. Waste not, want not is the engineer's motto, Miss. Properly processed human ordure makes very useful fuel for our city's engines, and we are experimenting with ways of turning it into a tasty and nutritious snack. We feed our prisoners on nothing else. Unfortunately, they keep dying, but that is just a temporary setback, I'm sure. Catherine walked to the edge of the nearest tank. I have come down to the sunless country, she thought. Oh, Cleo, this is the land of the dead. But even the sunless country could not be as terrible as this place. The slurry swilled and shifted, slapping at the edges of the tanks as London trundled over a range of rugged hills. Flies buzzed in thick clouds beneath the vaulted roof and settled on the faces and bodies of the labourers. Their shaven heads gleamed in the dim half-light, faces set in blank stares as they skimmed the thick crust from the surface and transferred it into hoppers, which other convicts wheeled on rails along the sides of the tank. Grim-faced apprentice engineers looked on, swinging long, black truncheons. Only Dog seemed happy. He was straining at his leash, his tail wagging, and every now and then he would look, look up eagerly at Catherine as if to thank her for bringing him somewhere with such interesting smells. She fought down her rising lunch and turned to Nimmo. These poor people, who are they? Oh, don't worry about them, said the supervisor. They're convicts, criminals, they deserve it. What did they do? Oh, this and that, petty theft, tax dodging. 
criticising our Lord Mayor. They're very well treated, considering. Now, let's see if we can find Apprentice Pod. While he spoke, Catherine had been watching the nearest tank. One of the men working it had stopped moving and let go of his rake, holding his head as if overcome by dizziness. Now a girl apprentice had also noticed him, and stepping up to the edge of the tank, she jabbed at the man with her truncheon. Blue sparks flickered where it touched him, and he thrashed and howled and floundered, finally vanishing under the heaving surface. Other prisoners stared towards the place where he had sunk, too scared to go and help. "'Do something!' gasped Catherine, turning to Nimmo, who seemed not to have noticed. Another apprentice came running along the edge of the tank, shouting at the prisoners below him to help their comrade. Two or three of them dredged him up, and the new apprentice leant down into the tank and hauled him out, splattering himself with slurry in the process. He was wearing a little gauze mask like many of the warders, but Catherine was sure she recognised him, and at her side she heard Nimmo growl, Pod! They hurried towards him. Apprentice Pod had dragged the half-drowned convict onto the metal walkway between the tanks and was trying to wash the slurry from his face with water from a standpipe nearby. The other apprentice, the one who had jabbed the poor man in the first place, looked on with an expression of disgust. "'You're wasting water again, Pod,' she said, as Catherine and Nimmo ran up. "'What is going on here, apprentices?' asked Nimmo crossly. "'This man was slacking,' the girl said. "'I was just trying to get him to work a bit faster.' He's feverish, said Apprentice Pod, looking up plaintively, covered in stinking muck. It's no wonder he couldn't work. Catherine knelt beside him, and he noticed her for the first time, his eyes widening in surprise. He had succeeded in washing most of the slurry from the man's face, and she reached out and laid her hand on the damp brow. Even by the standards of the deep gut, it felt hot. He's really sick, she said, looking up at Nimmo. He's burning up. He should be in hospital. "'Hospital,' replied Nimmo. "'We have no hospital down here. "'These are prisoners, Miss Valentine, criminals. "'They don't require medical care.' "'He'll be another case for K-Division soon,' "'observed the girl apprentice. "'Be quiet,' hissed Nimmo. "'What does she mean, K-Division?' asked Catherine. "'Nimmo wouldn't answer. "'Apprentice Pod was staring at her, "'and she thought she saw tears trickling down his face, "'although it might have been perspiration.' She looked down at the convict, who seemed to have slid into a sort of half-sleep. The metal decking looked terribly hard, and on a sudden impulse she pulled off her hat and folded it and slipped it under his head as a pillow. "'He shouldn't be here,' she said angrily. "'He's far too weak to work in your horrible tanks.' "'It's appalling,' agreed Nimmo. "'The sort of prisoners we are being sent these days are just too feeble. "'If the Guild of Merchants made more of an effort to solve the food shortage, "'they might be a bit healthier, "'or if the navigators pulled their fingers out "'and tracked down some decent prey for once. "'But I think you have seen enough, Miss Valentine. "'Kindly ask Apprentice Pod whatever it is your father wishes to know, "'and I shall take you back to the elevators.' "'Catherine looked round at Pod. "'He had pulled down his mask, and he was unexpectedly handsome.' with big dark eyes and a small perfect mouth. She stared at him for a moment, feeling stupid. Here he was, being brave, trying to help this poor man, and she was bothering him with something that suddenly seemed quite trivial. "'It's Miss Valentine, Miss, isn't it?' he said nervously, as Dog pushed past him to sniff at the sick man's fingers. Catherine nodded. "'I saw you in the gut that night when we ate salt hook,' she said. "'Down by the waste chutes?' I think you saw the girl who tried to kill my father. 
Could you tell me everything you remember? The boy stared at her, fascinated by the long, dark strands of hair that were falling down across her face now that her hat was off. Then his eyes flicked away to look at Nimmo. I didn't see anything, miss, he said. I mean, I heard shouting and I ran to help. But with all the smoke and stuff, I didn't see anybody. Are you sure? pleaded Catherine. It could be terribly important. Apprentice Pod shook his head and wouldn't meet her eye. I'm sorry. The man on the deck suddenly stirred and gave a great sigh, and they all looked down at him. It took Catherine a moment to understand that he was dead. See, said the girl apprentice smugly, told you he was for K Division? Nimmo was prodding the body with the toe of his boot. Take him away, apprentice. Catherine was shaking. She wanted to cry, but she couldn't. If only she could do something to help these poor people. I'm going to tell my father all about this when he gets home, she promised. And when he finds out what's going on in this dreadful place, she wished she had never come here. Beside her, she heard Pod say again, Sorry, Miss Valentine, and wasn't sure if he was sorry because he couldn't help her or sorry for her because she had learned the truth of what life was like under London. Nimmo was growing edgy. Miss Valentine, I insist that you leave now. You shouldn't be here. Your father should have sent an official member of the Guild if he had business with this apprentice. What did he hope to learn from the boy anyway? I'm coming, said Catherine, and did the only thing she could for the dead convict. She reached out and gently shut his eyes. I'm sorry, whispered Apprentice Pod as they led her away. Chapter 17. The Pirate Suburb Late that night, and deep in the Restwater marshes, Tunbridge Wheels finally caught up with its prey. The exhausted townlet had blundered into a sinkhole, and the suburb hit it side on without bothering to slow its thunderous speed. The impact tore the townlet to pieces, and splinters came raining down into the suburb's street as it turned and sped back to swallow the wreckage. Meals on wheels, the pirates howled. From their cage in the suburb's gut, Tom and Hester watched in horror as the dismantling engines went to work, ripping the townlet into heaps of scrap without even bothering to let the survivors off. The few who did come stumbling out were grabbed by the waiting pirates. If they were young and fit, they were dragged off to other tiny cages, like the one in which Hester and Tom had been imprisoned. If not, they were killed, and their bodies were added to the rubbish heap at the edge of the digestion yard. Oh, great quirk! Tom whispered, this is horrible. They're breaking every rule of municipal Darwinism. It's a pirate suburb, Natsworthy, said Hester. What did you expect? They strip their prey as quickly as they can and make the captives slaves in their engine rooms. They don't waste food and space on people who are too weak to work. It's not really so different from what your precious London gets up to. At least this lot have the honesty to call themselves pirates. The flash of a crimson robe out in the digestion yards caught Tom's eye. The mayor of the pirate suburb had come down to take a look at his latest catch and he was strutting along the walkway outside the cells, surrounded by his bodyguards. He was a tiny little man, stooping and hunched-shouldered, a bald head and scrawny neck jutting from the cat fur collar of his gown. He didn't look friendly. He looks more like a moth-eaten vulture than a mare whispered Tom, tugging at Hester's sleeve and pointing. What do you think he'll do with us? She shrugged, glancing up into the, at the approaching party. 
We'll be slung into the engine rooms, I suppose. Then she stopped short, staring at the mare as if he was the most amazing thing she had ever seen. Shouldering Tom aside, she thrust her face against the bars of the cage and started to shout. Peavy! she hollered, straining to make herself heard over the thunder of the gut. Peavy! Over here! Do you know him? asked Tom, confused. Is he a friend? Is he all right? I don't have friends, snapped Hester, and he's not all right. He's a ruthless, murdering animal, and I've seen him kill people for just looking at him in a funny way. So, let's hope the catch has put him in a good mood. Peavy, over here, it's me, it's Hester Shaw. The ruthless, murdering animal turned towards their cage and scowled. His name's Chrysler Peavy, Hester explained hoarsely. He stopped to trade and stroll a couple of times when I lived there with Shrike. He was mayor of another little scavenger town. The gods alone know how he got himself a flash suburb like this. Now hush and let me do the talking. Tom studied Chrysler Peavy as he came stalking over to peer at the captives, henchmen clustering behind. He wasn't much to look at. His lumpy scalp reflected the glare of furnaces and the sweat draining off it made pale stripes in the grime on his face. As if to make up for his bald head, he had hair almost everywhere else. Grubby white bristles pushing out of his chin, thick grey tufts sprouting from his ears and nostrils, and a pair of enormous, bushy, wriggling eyebrows. A tarnished chain of office hung round his neck, and on one shoulder perched a scrawny monkey. Who are they? he said. Couple of hitchhikers, boss. I mean, your worship, said one of his guards, a woman whose hair had been plaited and lacquered into two long, curving horns. Come aboard in the middle of the chase, your worship, added another, the man who had overseen the newcomer's capture. He showed Peavy the coat he was wearing, the fleece-lined aviator's coat he had taken from Tom. I got this off one of them. Peavy grunted. He seemed about to turn away, but Hester kept grinning her crooked grin at him and saying, Peavy, it's me, until she lit a spark of recognition in his greedy black eyes. Bloody hull, he growled. It's the tin man's kid. You're looking good, Peavy, said Hester, and Tom noticed that she didn't try to hide her face from the pirates, as if she knew that she mustn't let them see any sign of weakness. Blimey, said Peavy, looking her up and down. Blimey, it really is you, the stalker's little helper, all growed up and uglier than ever. Where's old Shrikey then? Dead, said Hester. Dead? What was it? Metal fatigue? He gave a great guffaw and the bodyguards all joined in obediently and until even the monkey on his shoulder started shrieking and rattling its chain. Metal fatigue? Get it? So, how come you're running Tunbridge Wheels? asked Hester, while he was still wiping the tears from his eyes and chuckling. The last I heard of this place, it was a respectable suburb. It used to hunt up north on the edges of the ice. Peavy chuckled, leaning against the bars. Flashy, innit? he said. This place at my old town a couple of years back, come racing up one day and scoffed it straight down. They was soft, though. They hadn't reckoned with me and my boys. We busted out of the gut and took over the old place. Set the mayor and the council to work, stoking their own boilers, settled ourselves down in their comfy houses and their posh town hall. No more scavenging for me. I'm a proper mayor now. Is worship 
Chrysler Peavy at your service. Tom shuddered, imagining the dreadful things that must have happened here when Peavy's roughs took over. But Hester just nodded as if she was impressed. Congratulations, she said. It's a good town. Fast, I mean, well built. You're taking a risk, though. If your prey hadn't stopped when it did, you'd have plunged straight into the heart of the rest water and sunk like a stone. Peavy waved the warning away. Not Tunbridge Wheels, sweetheart. This suburb's specialised. Myers and marshes don't bother us. There are fat towns hiding in these swamps and fatter prey still where I'm planning to go next. Hester nodded. So how about letting us out then? She asked casually. With all this prey to catch, you could probably use a couple of good tough helpers up top. Ha ha, chortled Peavy. Nice try, Hetty, but you're out of luck. Prey's been short these last couple of years. I need all the loot and grub I can find just to keep the lads happy. And they won't be happy if I start bringing new faces aboard. Especially not faces as horrible as yours. He bellowed with laughter again, looking round at his bodyguards to make sure they were joining in. The monkey ran up onto the top of his head and squatted there, chattering. But you need me, Peavy, Hester told him, forgetting all about Tom in her desperation. I'm not soft. I'm probably tougher than half of your best lads. I'll fight for a place up top if that's what it takes. Oh, I can use you all right, agreed Peavy. But not up top. It's in the engine rooms where I need help. Sorry, Etty. He turned away and beckoned to the woman with the horns. Chain him up, Mags, and take him to the slave pits. Hester slumped down on the floor of the cage, despairing. Tom touched her shoulder, but she shrugged him irritably away. He looked past her at Peavy stalking away across his blood-stained yards and the pirates advancing on the cage with guns and manacles. To his surprise, he felt more angry than afraid. After all that they had been through, they were going to become slaves after all. It wasn't fair. Before he knew what he was doing, he was on his feet and pounding at the greasy bars and in a strange, thin-sounding voice, he heard himself shouting, No! Peavy turned round. His eyebrows climbed his craggy forehead like mountaineering caterpillars. No, shouted Tom again. You know her and she just asked you for help and you ought to help her. You're a coward eating up little towns that can't escape and murdering people and sticking people in the slave pit because you're too scared of their own men to help them. Mags and the other guards all raised their guns and looked at Peavy expectantly, waiting for him to give the order to blow the impertinent prisoner to pieces. But he just stood and stared, and then came walking slowly back towards the cage. What did you say? he asked. Tom took a step backwards. When he tried to speak again, no words came out. You're from London, ain't you? asked Peavy. I'd recognise that accent anywhere. And you're not from the Netherboroughs, neither. What tier do you come from? T-t-two, stammered Tom. Tier two? Peavy looked round at his companions. You hear that? That's almost High London, that is. This bloke's an High London gentleman. What did you want to go slinging a gentleman like this in the lockups for, Mags? But you said... Mags protested. Never mind what I said, screamed Peavy. Get him out! The horned woman fumbled at the lock until the door slid open and the other pirates grabbed Tom and dragged him out of the cage. Peavy pushed them aside and started dusting him down with a sort of rough gentleness, muttering, 
That's no way to treat a gentleman. Spanner, give him back his coat. What? cried the pirate wearing Tom's coat. No way! Peavy pulled out a gun and shot him dead. I said, give the gentleman back his coat! He shouted at the startled-looking corpse, and the others hurried to pull the coat off and put it back on Tom. Peavy patted at the smouldering bullet hole on the breast. Sorry about the blood, he said earnestly. These blokes, they've got no manners. Please allow me to apologise most humbly for the misunderstanding and welcome you aboard my humble town. It's an honour to have a real gentleman aboard at last, sir. I do hope you'll join me for afternoon tea in the town hall. Tom gaped at him. He had only just realised that he wasn't going to be killed. Afternoon tea was the last thing he was expecting. But as the pirate mayor started to lead him away, he remembered Hester still cowering in the cage. I can't leave her down here, he said. What? Hetty? Peavy looked bewildered. We're travelling together, explained Tom. She's my friend. There's plenty of other girls in Tunbridge Wheels, said Peavy. Much better ones, with noses and everything. Why, my own lovely daughter would be very pleased to make your acquaintance. I can't leave Hester behind, said Tom as firmly as he dared, and the mayor simply bowed and gestured to his men to open the cage again. At first, Tom thought that Peavy was interested in the same thing as Miss Fang, information about where London was headed and what had brought it out into the central hunting ground. But although the pirate mayor was full of questions about Tom's life in the city, he didn't seem to have much interest in its movements. He was just pleased to have what he called a high London gent aboard his town. He gave Tom and Hester a guided tour of the town hall and introduced them to his councillors, a rough-looking gang with names to match, Janny Mags and Thick Mungo and Staatsfesser Zeb, Pogo Nadgers and Zip Risky and the Traction Grad Kid. Then it was time for afternoon tea in his private quarters, a room full of looted treasures high in the town hall where his rabble of whining, snot-nosed children kept getting under everybody's feet. His eldest daughter, Cortina, brought tea in delicate porcelain cups and cucumber sandwiches on a blast glass tray. She was a dim, terrified girl with watery blue eyes and when her father saw that she hadn't cut the crusts off the sandwiches he knocked her backwards over the poof. Thomas here is from London, he shouted, hurling the sandwiches at her. He expects things posh, and you should have done them in little triangles. What can you do, he said plaintively, turning to Tom. I've tried to brung her up ladylike, but she won't learn. She's a good girl, though. I look at her sometimes and almost wish I hadn't shot her mum. He sniffed and dabbed at his eyes with a huge skull and crossbones hanky and Cortina came trembling back with fresh sandwiches. The thing is, Peavy explained, through a mouthful of bread and cucumber, the thing is, Tom, I don't want to be a pirate all me life. Um, no, said Tom. No, said Peavy. You see, Tommy boy, I didn't have the advantages what you've got when I was a kid. I didn't get no education or nothing, and I've always been ugly as sin. Oh, oh I wouldn't say that. Tom mumbled politely. I had to look out for myself in the dust heaps and the ditches, but I always knew one day I'd make it big. I saw London once, see, from a distance like, off on its travels somewhere. I thought it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen, all them tears and the white villas up top all shining in the sun. 
And then I heard about them rich people what live out there. And I decided that's how I want to live. All them posh outfits and garden parties and trips to the theatre and that. So I become a scavenger. And then I got a little town of my own. And now I've got a bigger one. But what I really want, he learned, leaned close to Tom. What I really want is to be respectable. Yes, yes, of course, agreed Tom, glancing at Hester. You see, what I'm thinking is this, Peavy went on. If this hunting trip works out like I hope, Tunbridge Wheels is going to be rich soon, really rich. I love this suburb, Tom. I want to see it grow. I want to have a proper upper level with parks and posh mansions and no oiks allowed and elevators going up and down. I want Tunbridge Wheels to turn into a city, a proper big city with me as Lord Mayor, something I can hand down to me sprogs. And you, Tommy, I want you to tell me how a city ought to be and teach me manners, etiquette-like, so I can hobnob with other Lord Mayors and not have them laugh at me behind my back. And all we lads as well. They live like pigs at the moment. So what do you say? Will you turn us into gentlemen? Tom blinked at him, remembering the hard faces of Peavy's gang and wondering what they would do if he started telling them to open doors for each other and not to chew with their mouths open. He didn't know what to say, but in the end Hester said it for him. It was a lucky day for you when Tom came aboard. She told the mayor, he's an expert on etiquette. He's the politest person I know. He'll tell you anything you want, Peavy. But, said Tom, and winced as she kicked his ankle. Lovely, jubbly, cackled Peavy, spraying them both with half-eaten sandwich. You stick with old Chrysler, Tommy boy, and you won't go far wrong. As soon as we've scoffed our big catch, you can start work. It's waiting for us on the far side of these marshes. We should reach it by the end of the week. Tom sipped at his tea. In his mind's eye, he saw again the great map of the hunting ground, the broad sweep of the rust water, and beyond it. Beyond the marshes, he said. But beyond the marshes, there's nothing but the Sea of Kazakh. Relax, Tommy boy, chuckled Chrysler Peavy. Didn't I tell you? Tunbridge Wheels is specialised. Just you wait and see. Wait and see, get it? Wait and see. Ha ha ha. And he slapped Tom on the back and swigged his tea, his little finger delicately raised. Bedtime stories on 1707 Radio. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 